If you'll take your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. Would you turn this mic on, please? Thank you. Starting at verse 2, please. 2 Corinthians 13. I had previously said when present the second time, And though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not fail to recognize, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tim was preaching, and in one of his sermons, he explained about the concept of shaving money. If you remember that concept, in the time of the Bible, there were people who would try to pass coins of gold and silver that were underweight. And the way that they would do this is that they would, as they would pour the metal into the, into the cup or into the mold, they would make sure and get as little metal into the mold as possible, or they might have actually trim the metal off the edge of the coin to make it smaller, and therefore they can keep more of the precious metal for themselves and try to pass it in transactions. And those who passed properly weighted coins were understood to be honorable individuals. And so they were called docimus, or approved individuals, for passing coins. And those who did not pass honorable coins or dishonorable coins themselves were called adokimus, which meant that they were not approved, that they were not okay. And when we look at these words in 2 Corinthians 13, when Paul asks the Corinthians to test themselves, and he talks about the possibility of their failing at the test, that's what he means. That's the word that's used when he talks about that possibility of failing, adokimus, that they didn't measure up that they fell short. There's two things that we have to realize about the test that Paul's talking about here, just on the surface. One is, Paul is in an argument with them, or he's in a process of convincing them of his authority as an apostle to them. And so in this process, when he's saying to test yourselves, to see if Christ is in you, he's also asking them to test themselves to see if his ministry to them is in fact authentic because if they have Christ within them and he was the one who preached Christ to them then they received Christ in the appropriate manner from someone who he himself had Christ so Paul in one sense is trying to convince them of the authenticity of his 
of his authority in their lives. But in another sense, he's further showing them and us, as he does in other places in the scripture, that it is possible and necessary, beneficial to examine ourselves for evidence of Christ working. And so he says to them, test yourselves. What about this testing? What is a test? Well, a test is an examining procedure. We, all, we have all taken tests, unless we're very young. We've all taken tests in our lives. But when he asks the Corinthians to test themselves, he's obviously not asking for the proctor to walk down the aisles and pass out the test booklets, right? That's not how they can test themselves to see if they're in Christ. We're not going to set the clocks for one hour as you fill in the blanks. They need to have a way to test themselves and understand what is happening as regards Christ in their lives. What does testing for Christ look like? How do we examine and measure ourselves? I remember when I was in junior high, I participated in a track and field program at my local public school. Now, you can look at me and you may be able to guess which side of the program I was on, track or field. Any? Okay. You get it, don't you? Okay. Well, I actually was a shot putter. That was my main event in the track and field program. And I wasn't allowed to throw the shot put, however, unless I was also entered in some foot races in every track meet. So I would have to enter myself in foot races, and not being a man with, at that time a young man, with much wind in my lungs for long-distance races, I was always entered in the very short sprinting races. All I can say is, it wasn't a pretty sight. It's not my fault those track lanes are so narrow. But I do have an older brother, and he was also one who ran track. And he ran in the hurdling events. And hurdling, for those who don't understand what that involves, it means running along or around the track and jumping over regularly placed gates or hurdles. There are low hurdles. I'm trying to remember. They're probably about this high. And then there were high hurdles, and I think they were about this high. Okay? So these people would run around the track or down the fast lane of the track, jumping over hurdles in the race. And I would watch with admiration because all of these people had to run this hurdling race with their, their steps very carefully placed. If they got out of place, what you would hear is a loud whack. And then you'd turn your head and look and you'd see kind of this gate and this person kind of rolling down the track together and you'd know that, either their front foot as it was going over or their back foot as it was going over, caught on the gate, and they were tied up in the hurdle. They would go back, begin the race again after setting up the hurdle, or go on to the next event. And as they progressed in age, now my brother never got taller. Don't tell him I told you that. But he was always quite a bit shorter, so he never got to the high hurdles. But as they progressed in age and they got taller, they went on to high hurdles. It was easier for a man who had enough height to just run and in his step be able to clear those high hurdles as well. And as they developed in stamina, they would go on to longer hurdling runs. It wasn't just a a short 
uh, yard or a 100-yard run with the hurdles. They might go for a hurdling run that went uh, 220 yards or 440 yards around the track. I know they talk about meters in, in track most of the time now, but I was still in, we were still in, uh, in yards when I was in school. Well, why the lesson on hurdling? I think it will help us to understand our testing for Christ within us. Because as I see God's work in my life and in the lives of others, I see something that reminds me of hurdling. The Bible shows us clearly that we are entered into a spiritual race that encompasses our entire lives. We begin to be conscious of the race when God, by His grace, makes us aware of our sin. There is regeneration in our, in our hearts. Something happens. We become aware of our sin. And we see a hurdle in front of us. It's the first barrier that we have to overcome by faith. We confess our sins and we believe in Christ for forgiveness of our sin and we're baptized into Him. We're converted. We're changed from darkness to light, from death to life, from fleshly pursuits to spiritual pursuits. The Bible says we're circumcised in our hearts that we want to follow Christ. We start to live lives of faith. We begin the battle against our most obvious external sins. More hurdles. We learn more about God. Our minds are being renewed and transformed. Another hurdle. Another point of faith and trust. We begin to understand doctrines like imputation and propitiation, even if we don't know those specific words. Our changed hearts start to cause a stir in our families and our relational circles. More hurdles. We find out something more about our sin. We find out that it's attached to us as surely as our hearts are. We begin to despair over the very motives in our hearts and we begin to mourn over the depth of the stain that we have within us. A bigger, larger hurdle. We have a first clear look at our spiritual inability. We become acquainted with God's sovereignty. It's like we're starting around the track all over again and someone is putting taller gates in front of us to jump. They're not different gates. They're just expressions of the same levels of faith or ideas of faith that God would have us overcome that meet us at different times in our lives and challenge us to a higher sense of obedience. We discover new sin in our hearts that we must confess, new idols that we must cast down, a new level of faith in the giving of our time and our energy and our money that we're challenged with. Every one of these hurdles is a test. Everyone represents a point where we will exercise faith or not. Paul doesn't just want us to acknowledge that this is true. He wants us to begin to test ourselves as we approach each gate. Turn back to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And hear what Paul has to say. Starting at verse 24. <clears throat> Do you not know 
that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it with a do. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, chapter 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless with, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overcome, overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In this passage, the obvious obstacles or hurdles to our running are the temptations to sin that we encounter. And I would suggest this morning that we consider that every obstacle in our life comes with some temptation to sin, some temptation to not have faith in God, some temptation to give up on the Lord. But as we look at these verses from 1 Corinthians, I want to especially notice six things that are in the text. First, I want us to notice that we are running for a fantastic, imperishable prize. The pure enjoyment of eternal life, basking in the light and love of our Maker, our Redeemer, our Sustainer. The unimaginable glory of the presence of God. George Whitfield, who was a preacher in a great spiritual awakening 300 years ago, said, If a soul is truly converted, there will be a battle and an awful chasm that will never be filled up but with the love of God. And therefore, when we say, repent and be converted, it is no more than saying, repent and be happy. Indeed, we shall never be completely happy till we get to heaven. He said, the heart once touched with the magnet of divine love ever turns, ever after turns to the pole. Or there's a song that I'm hoping we will soon learn here. And the words of the first verse go like this. 
I have tasted of a love sweeter than the honeycomb, and I have heard the symphony of your whisper in my soul. I am ruined for this world, for none compares with you, my Lord. You have captured me, completely captured me. We are running for a fantastic, imperishable prize. Another aspect of these verses is that we are running for we are running a race that continues throughout our entire lives. Paul himself Paul himself does not want to be found unapproved. And so as he's talking about these verses, he talks about the test of his own life. In verse 27, uh, let me read that to you, chapter 9, 27. He says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He uses that same word there as we see in the passage from 2 Corinthians that I read earlier. I don't want to be unapproved. I don't want to be found short. He's concerned about his own life. He's continuing, even Paul who'd been a minister all of those years, who'd been preaching all of that time. He was continuing to look and make sure that he was approved by God. He wants to pass the test and to be found qualified by virtue of the true work of Christ in his life. In Philippians 3, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord and skipping down, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let us, therefore, as many are perfect, as are perfect, have this attitude. Paul didn't didn't see himself as having completed the process. He saw that he was continually in this battle. The race continues throughout our entire lives. The third thing that I would have us notice in the verses from 1 Corinthians 10 is that we're given an example of what it means to be unapproved. We're given an example. In fact, twice it says that these people are an example to us in that chapter. It says the Israel of the Exodus are an example to us of what it means not to be approved by God. For they had experienced all of the miraculous work of God firsthand They were there for the plagues that ravaged Egypt that God used to to humble the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And they were brought out of Egypt. They were there at the Red Sea when the sea was parted. And they walked through on dry ground. And the Egyptians, when they followed through the water, through the the, uh, sea, as the Egyptians were going into the sea, the sea fell in on them and destroyed them. They were there for the miraculous manna. They were there at the side of the mountain when the law was delivered to Moses. They saw water come out of rocks just at the 
tapping of the staff. They saw quail fly in in droves to feed them. Yet they did not see the work of God in their hearts. They didn't see a change inside. They weren't testing themselves to see if they were in the faith. They preferred idols. They preferred immorality. They preferred grumbling. Hebrews says that they were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. They're set as an example before us, as a warning, as we look at ourselves and as we run the race that's set in front of us. The fourth thing I would have us see in this text is that every temptation, every obstacle, every hurdle that is in front of us is common to us. But it's not just common to us here and now. It has been common to man from the beginning. There's a long historically documented battle over God's work in salvation and His agency in our salvation and His sovereignty in our salvation. There's a, a, a good documented history of this, of this long fight. Pastor Tim has been preaching out of Galatians. And he's been preaching about one of the places where the Bible documents this fight over God's sovereignty in our salvation because Paul was trying to teach the Galatians not to listen to the Judaizers, not to listen to, not to, listen to those who said it was Christ and the work of God and anything else that they could do, that they had anything to bring before God, that they, there was anything they could present to God that would help in his accepting them. So we have Paul and the Judaizers. And early in the, in, the, in the church, in a couple centuries or three centuries later, we have a man named Pelagius. And I'm, not, I'm going to run through just a quick history of this as an example of the way that uh, all, through church, all through the history of our lives, the history of the world, there have been the same obstacles before us. But I'm going to use God's sovereignty as a quick example of that. Pelagius, who fought against God's sovereignty, who said men have complete power to do all that God requires, that there's no such thing as original sin. And Augustine, his contemporary, who fought against him and said, no, no man is morally corrupt, even to the foundation of the affections of his will. Later on, there were a group of semi-Pelagians, because Pelagius was somewhat squashed by the church. But then there, were, there arose semi-Pelagians who didn't say it quite as strongly as Pelagius. They had a more subtle approach to it. They said, well, man cooperates with God in God's grace and regeneration. We, don't, we can't do it all by ourselves. We have to cooperate with God in the process. And so there were councils of the church where they discussed this issue and they said, no, that's not true. That Augustine was right and the Apostle Paul was right. And God, the Holy Spirit, is right when he says, man cannot do this. It is the work, it's the agency of God that accomplishes salvation. In the 13th century, there was Thomas Aquinas who said something incredible. He said that Mary, the blessed Mary who was the mother of Christ, had original sin. And he was opposed for saying this by another man, Duns Scotus, who said, no, 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 no. Mary was immaculately conceived. She could not have possibly had original sin and been the mother of Christ. Later, the Reformation in the 1500s. Luther nails 
the 95 Thesis on the wall of the Wittenberg door, saying, no, it is by faith. It is by faith that we are saved. And it's not because we have purchased indulgences. It's not because we have done all of these acts and that God has helped us through these acts, but he says it is clearly and simply by faith. And, of course, the Roman church opposed this in the Council of Trent, opposed the Reformation as it was surging forth and had to deal with the conflict in in themselves, incidentally, because they also had Thomas Aquinas as their champion uh, earlier. And so there had to be some footwork in the process of opposing the Reformation. Finally, we get to John Calvin, the one that so many of us are indebted to, particularly in our particular historical background in the church. And John was known as the organizer of Protestantism. And he had a student named Jacobus Arminius, who was a Dutch Reformed theologian. And Arminius challenged some of Calvin's beliefs. And although he didn't end up publicly bringing the challenge to the church at large, some of his followers did. And they said that man was never so bad and corrupted in sin that he could not choose saving grace, saving belief when presented with the gospel. So it was another form of the semi-Pelagianism that had happened earlier. And of course, they brought five particular points before the council that they stood before, the Synod of Dort. And the five particular points ended up being responded to by the Synod. And if you know anything about history, what do those five responses become known as in the acronym? The Calvin's Tulip. So what the, what the Arminian group brought before the Synod was the remonstrance, it was the, the protest against the, the theology that had been taught in that day. And what the, what the Sinna did is they responded, and they responded with those five points, although it's a, the tulip is a very abbreviated understanding of the five points. So this, this battle waged on. It waged on through John Wesley, who also did not accept the doctrine of election as, as it's understood. We, it waged on, and that was opposed by George Whitfield, who I quoted earlier, and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, later we had Charles Finney, who actually said, the doctrine of original sin is anti-scriptural and nonsensical. Charles Finney, who is so tied to the history of evangelicalism in our country today. And where is the church today? Well, I would say the Catholic Church is clearly in a position of semi-Pelagianism. And that the, that the Protestant Church, although we give lip service to uh, original sin, we talk about original sin, yet at the same time, we haven't really, for the most part, come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign in our salvation. I would say the Protestant church is mostly semi-Pelagian as well. All through history, this, this hurdle. But I had to go over that hurdle myself. I remember going over that hurdle. In fact, we all have to face that hurdle. George Whitfield said that everyone is born an Arminian. We all think that we can come to God from our very birth. We think that somehow we can come to God and and offer him something. We can give him something that will uh, allow him the ability to accept us. 
when in fact that's just not true. I remember being opposed to this doctrine. I saw this hurdle in front of me as I was growing up. I saw the verses in the Bible. I said, no, I can't accept that. I would argue with people as to why God was not sovereign in election because I hated the thought of my own inability. That's the bottom line. I hated the thought that I had nothing to offer. That was a loathsome idea to me. I mean, that was couched in all these other arguments, but that was finally the what it was. So I would use all the classical arguments about why God was not sovereign in salvation. But at the same time, I couldn't, recognize, I couldn't reconcile those scriptures in the Bible that so clearly talked about his sovereignty. And not being able to reconcile them, of course, they haunted me all the time. I can't explain what happened. I've tried to explain it to people. People have asked me about it. How did you leave being an Arminian and become a Calvinist or leave being opposed to God's sovereignty in, in salvation and, and then end up being uh, wonderfully comforted by that sovereignty? And I can't really explain it. I know what happened. I know the arguments that were going through my mind. But at some point, maybe five or six years ago, my heart was just changed. And what had become awful and oppressive to me became wonderful and comforting to me that there was a sovereign God and that He had done this for me. I had not done it myself. God had lifted me and lifted my feet over that hurdle in that time. That particular obstacle was overcome. But we returned to that again and again in our lives. It's not the last time I dealt with God's sovereignty before me. My father died last September, and once again I saw that in front of me. I saw that obstacle as my father was dying. And I knew that I had to trust God that he was sovereign, that he was in control. And it's so funny, this past week I was, I'm reading a book with another fellow in the church, and, and uh, this, in this book there was a quote from Jonathan Edwards, and I read this and I just almost laughed. Because, you know, Jonathan Edwards, contemporary of George Whitfield, we're talking 300 years ago, and this guy was a preacher in the Great Awakening. And, and he says this, quote, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them to et eternally to perish and be ever everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure, but never could give an account. He said, I could never give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it, in the most absolute sense in God's strewing mercy to, the, to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will, God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of 
as much as anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. Every hurdle is common to all of us. I, I wouldn't have wrote it that way because he was, of course, very eloquent and good with words, but it's the same thing that I say to people. And I'd never read it before this past week. A fifth thing that we have to notice in these verses is that we have an enemy to our testing ourselves, and that enemy is pride. Verse 12 says, of chapter 10 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. We will not put ourselves to the test if we falsely believe we have arrived. As always, pride is our enemy. It is humility that allows us to look within, not for a glimpse of our own goodness, but for a view of God's faithfulness. If we are humble before him, he will exalt us. 2 Corinthians 3:17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Every time we go over an obstacle, every time we get over a hurdle, we are ascending, we're changing, we're going from glory to glory. But if we're proud, if we won't humbly look inside and search for God's work in our lives, that will not happen. We will not get over anything. Faith is bolstered and hurdles are jumped and new glories are experienced as we will look to the Lord's work in our lives. But not if our pride convinces us that we've arrived or that we've made it in our strength alone. Pride is our enemy. The last thing I want you to see in these verses is that God is faithful to his work. God is faithful to his work. Some people mistakenly look at that verse in 2 Corinthians 13 that I read earlier as a text calling for people to doubt their own salvation. And they make the same mistake about another passage in Philippians 2, Philippians 2:12 and 13, which reads, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out, your own, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In 2 Corinthians and in Philippians, the challenge is for us to see if Christ is working in us. Seeing his fruit in our lives will bolster and confirm our faith. Not seeing the evidence of him will drive us to repentance and to pleading with humility because we know we have that emptiness in us. In Philippians, we don't work to earn our salvation. We work at seeing the evidence, as verse 13 so clearly says. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says in Romans 8, For we, do not, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, in hope that we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows that the, what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. A favorite verse we like to quote all the time. But it's in a context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If you read through those verses again, you find out that we don't have much to do there. It says we groan and we wait. And if you think about it, it's only by God's mercy that we are able to groan and wait. Everything else is the agency of God in those verses. And even our groaning and our waiting is the agency of God, the work of God. God is faithful to his work. When we approach these obstacles in our lives, we must remember his faithfulness. What hurdle are you facing today? We're all facing one. Every one of us. What is the hurdle that you're looking at? If you don't think you're facing a hurdle today, then your, your hurdle is the sin of pride. Because you've, you think that you stand. And you better take heed lest you fall. But I think all of us can think of something that is in front of us that's an obstacle. Some hurdle that we're facing. A challenge to our faith that's causing us to look inside. But I want to encourage you, look inside on purpose. You can see the hurdles easy enough because they oppose you. But you don't see Christ and the work of your Father easy enough because you have to look inside and see. Look inside. Pray that God will give you the ability to see His work in your life. And then look for his work in the hurdle that's before you. Is there a sin that you have to put a stop to? Is there an idol that you need to cast down in your life? Is there a wrong understanding about God that you must allow to be replaced with the truth? Is there a challenge to your faith in sickness or in sorrow or in death? Test yourselves. Look inside to see the work of God in you. Pray that you will be convinced by His Holy Spirit of the the fruit that He has produced in you and through you. Let's pray.
Dear Father in heaven, we pray today that you will give us application to your word. Lord, every sermon's application is is a matter of faith. And Lord, as we face the obstacles in our lives, the challenges, the the hurdles, the temptations that are before us, Father, we are at a point of needing faith in you. And we ask that you will give us eyes to look inside, the discipline to look to you in our lives, to see how you are taking us over these hurdles, to see your power and your victory, to see your hand mighty to save and to deliver.